Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for joining us. By now, you've probably started to see coverage begin of the Parkland shooting trial. The sentencing phase of the trial began yesterday after a long jury selection process. The chosen jurors will now decide if Nicholas Cruz will get life in prison or the death penalty for killing 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and wounding 17 others back in 2018. WLRN's Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III is at the courthouse. As day two gets underway, he joins us now for a brief update and just a warning for some of the talk that we're, we're going to have here. We know this is a difficult conversation with very disturbing details for a lot of people in our community. Um, Gerard, where are you right now in the courthouse? What's the scene like today? Well, today's day two. Um, there are a bit... Uh, there are fewer families here than the first day. There's there's fewer media as well, and the um, some of the kinks, uh, some of the hiccups technically that were getting worked out yesterday uh, with evidence, with um, technology in the courtroom are are, are worked out. And uh, right now we're we're on a lunch break and, and about to head back in for uh, the second half of the day. When you say kinks, what are you talking like? What happened? Um, so in one instance, uh, let me let me say how the courtroom is set up. There's there's monitors everywhere. Um, each juror has a monitor in front of them. The judge, the um, lawyers, and um, on a podium there are monitors. Then there are two monitors that show the public what everybody else is seeing. For the sensitive evidence, um, the court has agreed to turn off those monitors. Yesterday, at one point during some evidence, it was not turned off and. There was an outburst from uh, one of the families of the victims to to turn it off. I see. Um, so, look, the gunman confessed to the shooting, pleaded guilty. Explain what piece of this trial is underway now. What's this process we're, we're going through? So this is just the penalty phase. Um, there is no question of guilt. The only question right now is uh, life in prison or the death penalty. And uh, the jury will have to decide that. Uh, for the death penalty, they'll have to be unanimous. And there's 17 charges of murder. So that means there are 17 uh, charges that the jury will have to rule on. So yesterday there was a lot of media coverage, of course. I mean, it was it was on all things considered. What were the main takeaways from the first day besides the glitches that you talked about? Is there anything else that jumped out at you? Well, only the prosecution spoke yesterday, and it, and it seems like that's going to be a pattern. The the defense held off their opening, which is a, a rare and has been called risky uh, strategy. They are going to um, only give their openings when the state rests this case. Um, the state in their opening just went through it. It took an hour, and uh, head prosecutor Mike Satz just went through moment by moment the entire shooting um so it, it was brutal and then um came the the video evidence um some of it wasn't shown to the public like i said but you could still hear it and it was loud and the families were all in there and and, and it was emotional and raw and, and and you heard gunshots and you heard students who were injured cry out for help um it, it was a brutal brutal day what's expected for the rest of today after you guys break from lunch so the prosecution strategy has has so far been to um, kind of trace the shooter. So today we've heard from students who survived 
who were in uh, room 1216 in, in an English class, and they were freshmen. And it seems like we're going to keep hearing from survivors right now. Um, earlier today, um, the, the jury and the lawyers watched the surveillance video of the shooting um, from two separate angles. Uh, there was no sound to that. And uh, so the families did not have to endure that. But for the rest of the day and for the rest of the prosecution's case, it looks like we're, they're going to track the shooter moment by moment and talk to witnesses along the way. I'm just, I'm wondering, look, I, I understand in any case like this that people have to relive and see these or hear these horrible things. I wonder with the jurors, is there any like access for them to any kind of mental health services considering what they have to go through every single day until this is over? So there's not. Um, it is uh, a obviously difficult thing to watch uh, this trial is expected to go at least four months and you know the, the judge's instructions are clear you cannot talk to anybody about the trial even your fellow juror you cannot talk to a therapist you cannot talk to your spouse you cannot talk to your priest or rabbi um you know they're, they're having to deal with this pretty much on their own um there are resources for victims there are resources for the victims families and even the witnesses, but for the jurors, they're kind of on their own. Oh, help those jurors going through this. Um, we've seen this today in Miami. The Miami-Dade County Commission, this, this just came out today, uh, is considering a newly filed resolution. This is from Commissioner Jose Pepe Diaz, urging state lawmakers to expedite this, the capital proceedings for convicted mass shooters, it says that there's, quote, almost never a question of guilt and that delayed capital punishment costs more money, acknowledging the heartbreak that these cases can cause families. Um, at, that Has anyone at the courthouse seen this yet? I'm wondering, do you know, have anybody discussed this? Because I know it just happened, but and I know you know it happened, but has anybody talked about this? I haven't. I haven't heard uh, anybody talk about it, the judge or the defense lawyers might bring it up um, when we go back into court. But I can I see it being very reactionary. I mean, the, the, over the weekend, the Sun Sentinel published a story how it's going. It's costing taxpayers at least $90,000 a month to keep this trial going. And that was just with lawyer fees. Um, that doesn't include all of the, the, the security and the Broward Sheriff's Office that are going into this. And, you know, if you watched or listened to or read about what happened yesterday in court um you'd understand why you wouldn't want uh, another trial like this um and this is one of um we've said it before it's one of if not the first trial um of a, of a school shooter that's killed this many people um this type of evidence usually never sees the light of day never makes it into the general public um and people are seeing it and hearing it for some for most of them it's the first time they're seeing or hearing this evidence and it, it's extru it's excruciating yeah so as you said this this could take up to four months what um what are we expecting these next first few days the you know this first week well, like i said the prosecutors are are going along um they're moving through uh, it seems like classroom to classroom and they're going to try and show that this shooting was premeditated, that the shooting was cold, calculated, and, and there was a risk to many people. Uh, that, that point's obviously not too hard to prove. But um, 
you know, th that the prosecution's case could go on for weeks, uh, could go on for another two months. Um, the defense, like I said, is not questioning any of the witnesses that have gone on and they haven't given their opening statement. So it's a little unclear of what they're going to argue exactly uh, when their time comes or when that time is going to come. That's unclear as well. Gerard, thank you so much for your reporting. Hang in there, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. And again, that's Gerard Albert III, WLRN's Broward County reporter. Uh, he is remaining at the courthouse, and we will keep bringing you updates uh, throughout the day, every day, uh, on this trial. Again, this is, uh, you know, the death penalty trial. They're going to decide either life in prison or the death penalty. All right, let's change things up here. We're going to shift topics, go a totally different direction. You know, it was barely a week ago when NASA began releasing images from the new James Webb Space Telescope. And we got to see these old images of space, but they were more vibrant, more clear. We got to see further into space than we have ever seen before. 13 billion years back, the new telescope is going to help us better understand our solar system, our galaxy, the universe in general. Joining us now to talk about this and a few other things, outer space, the guy I like to call the Buzz Lightyear of public radio, Brendan Byrne from our sister station, WMFE in Orlando. Brendan, always a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me. Love, love the title. <laughs> <laughs> you are that guy. Um, let me start with this. Describe for us this James Webb Space Telescope, and when did we send it out into space? Yeah, so, so the James Webb Space Telescope, or, or JWST, as, as many people are calling it now, is this massive observatory. It's, it's something like the size of like a school bus um, that has this massive sun shield that has unfolded uh, that makes it almost the size it would take up a, a whole tennis court. Um, so so this, thing is, this thing is huge. It's got 18 gold-plated mirrors, uh, and it's peering deep into, into the universe. It launched just... In December, which is not very long ago in, in the grand scheme of, of space missions, uh, it launched from South America and it spent the first few weeks and months actually unfurling. This whole thing is so huge, it had to fit into the nose cone of a rocket. So they actually had to fold it up almost like origami and then it unfurled in space, which was just a feat of engineering uh, within itself there. Um, and, and for the past few months, it was it was doing that getting set up and now it's made its first uh observations and we're starting to see those images coming down as, as you mentioned in the intro we're starting to see those images which are just absolutely stunning they are they are so beautiful by the way what happened to the hubble telescope nothing has happened to the hubble telescope the hubble te the hubble telescope has, has lost its spotlight unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> but hubble is still in orbit it is still making observations um hubble has has far exceeded uh, what NASA imagined its mission duration would be. Uh, in recent months and years, it's had a few hiccups with some software issues and, and some hardware issues, but NASA seems to find a way to continue to keep, keep Hubble operating despite not having uh, a way for us to go and visit it like we did in the 90s uh, with the space shuttle program. Uh, they're able to kind of do some, some uh, technical support here from the ground, but it's still taking incredible images and, and, most of most, if not all, the images that we're getting from JWST are based on observations that Hubble made first. So um, Hubble is, is very important in in astronomy still. 
you know what? It's it's like that old car. We're going to keep it around because <laughs> nostalgia anyway. We love it. We still love you, Hubble. We love Hubble. You know, I mean, thinking about those images, um, which one did you love most? Which one jumped out at you? So, you know, I think that first image that we got, because the images were supposed to be released all in one day, five images. Um, but then over the weekend before the release, NASA said, you know what? The White House is really excited in in showing these off. So in a, a joint press conference with with the White House and NASA, we saw the first one. And that's that deep field. Right. Um, so we got to see that the day before the big reveal. And, and I'm glad we did, um, because I think I needed that to realize what was actually coming next. By the way, where, um, where were you when this when, when they released them? Like everyone else, I was staring at my computer watching NASA TV, waiting for these images. I, I didn't get, I was hoping to get some embargoed images, but NASA would kept this one very, very close to the best. So, wow. so I was sitting, sitting here watching it uh, on my computer. Uh, my wife actually joined me to watch the, the, the White House reveal the day before, and she was equally as, as fascinated as me. Oh, these were, I mean, for me, I think the one where we're looking, 13 billion years, billion mm-hmm. in the past. And, and I was, I just thought that, and, and they pick a little dark, empty space, part of space. You think there's nothing there. And all of a sudden it's just filled with all these beautiful galaxies and stars. Mm-hmm. You uh, kind of have an existential crisis looking at it, right? <laughs> I know. It's, it's this little patch of the sky and there are so many galaxies and so many stars. We are, we are, but nothing <laughs> in the cosmos. If, if anything, it reminded me no matter what my problems, no matter what the problems, we are a speck of a speck of a speck in a galaxy and a speck of galaxies. Exactly. Um, you know what? It, it, I want to go to and ask you about, because I've been, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast and, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you had a recent conversation. This is a fascinating conversation for me is asteroids. Mm-hmm. And you had your you had the, the episode about, the, you know, possible asteroid hitting uh, hitting Earth. You talked with uh, Luisa Fernanda Zambrano Marin. I hope I'm saying that name right. Um, first of all, real quick, I just want to know, what are the odds that a big asteroid is going to hit Earth? Uh kind of slim but we probably should still pay attention to it <laughs> so uh, not re- I, I don't think uh scientists think we'll have an extinction level uh impact uh, in our lives lewis but um we probably should still pay attention there could there could very well be there there's there's all sorts of different sizes of asteroids right there's the extinction level event asteroids that you know we think killed the dinosaurs but there's also some smaller ones that could you know level some cities um, and depending on which, you know, that's that's something that we really should be concerned about. So uh, slim chances, but uh, it's probably best that we keep our eyes to the sky just in case. We have a map, right? We, we, we're, we're tracking a lot of these asteroids. We, we are, but but we don't really know where they are until they pass near us. Um, you know, the space is huge, as we both have, have come to terms with this week. Yep. Um, you know, space is large and, and we don't have a lot of um, a lot of missions focusing solely on spotting these things. A lot of them are they happen to be, you know, uh, secondary observations. Astronomers are looking at something else and they see this thing kind of cross the, the image of, of observation. Now, in that episode, we, we did talk about um, a, a near-Earth asteroid observatory going into space, but NASA's cut funding to that. Uh, so some advocates are saying we really need to put more money into this. We need to get telescopes in orbit specifically s- to spot these things so that we could prevent near disaster. Uh, I always thought if an asteroid was coming, the plan was we'd call Bruce Willis. 
That is still the plan. Okay, no. good. All right. No, no, just checking, just to make sure. Yeah. People if, 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 if NASA is looking for volunteers, I'm sure you and I will, will uh, sign up, right? Oh, <laughs> sign me up. I'm ready. Again, I'm talking with space reporter Brendan Byrne from our sister station, WMFE in Orlando, talking about the new James Webb Space Telescope. And you can follow Brendan's reporting on this, by the way, on our social media, WLRN Sundial. His podcast is Are We There Yet? Uh, check it out on your podcast app. Um, you know, coming back to the, the, the James Webb telescope, I'm wondering those, those images, are those actual like photographs or are those renderings of data points? So it, 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 it's a little bit different than the Hubble space telescope, right? You're, the Hubble space telescope looks at, um, the observable spectrum, um, with, with the James Webb space telescope, we're looking at infrared. So, so there is a, a bit of, of kind of color correcting to, to make it, you know, sp- a little bit clear, but th- this is this is some sort of wavelength that we are looking at, um, and it, it is stunning. But that is what <laughs> these things look like. I mean, if anybody has had the opportunity to kind of look through a telescope here on Earth, these these optical telescopes, and, and maybe look at Saturn's rings or or something a little bit deeper, you can see that. I mean, there's these stunning colors, and it's it's really beautiful. So we're we're looking at pretty much what what we would see up there. And I think there was also an image recently, what of Jupiter, right? So yes, there was a, there was one of, of Jupiter. Um, I will say I, I have not covered too much of, of that release um, just because I'm still you know still focused on what has come out before. But that's the, the incredible thing about JWST is it's able to look deep out into into the cosmos, but it, we can also turn it back around and look closer to home and, and see these stunning images uh, through this infrared spectrum. Infrared is is really difficult for us to observe here on Earth because our atmosphere pretty much gobbles it up. Right. Um, and so in order for, for astronomers to see this stuff, it has to be outside the atmosphere, which is why we put JWST where it is. And it also has to be very, very cold. So that's why you have this sun shield and it's a million miles away from, from Earth in an orbit away from us. So it's far, farther away from the sun. So you're able to see these much, much easier because of that. So, I mean, you talk about like looking deep, deep into space, but also we can we can look at things that are closer to us. But what have scientists said about what they really want to use this for? What are they hoping this telescope is going to help them do? So if you I, I, I talked to an astronomer about this and and he he brought this this great point up. Um, I spoke with him for the podcast that that's uh, dropping today. Um, and he mentioned that these these five images that that came out uh, really show the capabilities of of JWST, right? That that deep field image, the one with all of the galaxies in it, you know, we're we're seeing what the cosmos looked like at the very moment of the Big Bangs. We're seeing the birth of the universe with the Carina Nebula. That's that beautiful kind of orange and blue, cloudy looking thing. That mm-hmm. is. That is the birthplace of stars. So we're seeing the birth of the universe, the birthplace of stars. Uh, and then there's this beautiful nebula photo where this is a star dying. Um, so you're, you're seeing the birth and death of stars. Um, that is what JWST is, is doing. It is, it is opening up a time capsule. It's a time machine in itself, looking at the dawn of our cosmos so we can better understand where we came from and where we're going. And one thing that I'm really excited about is has the ability to look at planets 
outside of our own solar system. And one of those first images that was released last week was of a hot Jupiter called WASP-96b, if I'm not mistaken. But this is a planet that they actually used the JWST telescope to prove that there are clouds in its atmosphere, clouds of water in its atmosphere. Yeah. So that's just mind boggling to think that there is a planet some, you know, a thousand light years away that has water in it. And we know that water is necessary for life. So we're getting closer and closer to answering the question, are we alone in the universe? I think all of that is what scientists are excited about with the capabilities of JWST. I, I, I think a few real estate people are probably gonna be like, hey, let's see where there's another place we can start building. <laughs> Put a high rise out there. Oh, right? <laughs> why not? All right. You know, I always like to have fun with you. So tell me, what's the last great space movie that you've seen? You know, I haven't watched too many great space movies, Lewis, but I will tell you, I am finally catching up on For All Mankind on Apple Apple TV, which is uh, a, a kind of historical alternate fiction where the Russians won the race to the moon. And it looks at all the implications, the policy and, and exploration implications that would come with that. It's a fascinating series. I'm only about halfway through season one, so no spoilers, please. But it is great. <laughs> gotcha. Well, you know what? No, it's, I, I haven't caught up on any shows, but uh, I did find it was, I think it was on Hulu. I did find they had 2010. And I just, okay. I, I had to go back and watch it again. Those are great. It Those was are great. It was so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. Brendan, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Always happy to chat space with you. All right. Space reporter Brendan Byrne from our sister station, WMFE in Orlando. And again, his podcast, Are We There Yet? And those beautiful, beautiful images. We'll share some of those. If you haven't seen them by now, we'll share them on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, there's a national lifeguard shortage. We're taking a look at how that's affecting our beaches. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Swim at your own risk. You've seen those signs. They're popping up at beaches around the country. It's not like Baywatch anymore. In South Florida, more and more lifeguard towers are vacant. Lifeguards are having to work overtime to make up for the shortages. And vacancies are hitting a record high. And, and I mean, cities are working on any creative way they can to get more people to be interested in the job. Well, joining me now is Gio Serrano. He's the acting Fort Lauderdale Ocean Rescue Chief. Gio, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This was never an issue in the past, was it? Or have you ever seen anything like this? Uh, no, no. In the past, we've always had a list of uh, applicants waiting to either test out or just people wanted to work for us at whatever capacity, whether part-time or full-time. So what what's causing the shortage? I mean, is this part of the great reset? Uh, you know, uh, well, I forgot the, the phrase, but people are just leaving work. What, what's going on? Uh, no, we don't necessarily have uh, many people or people leaving. Uh, just like most departments, you know, in the city, we're having a hard time just getting people in the door or the requirements uh, for the job. Also, make it a little harder. It's not just as easy as fill up an application and off you go to start. You do have a, an amount, of, a certain level of physical requirements that you need to be able to pass and certifications that normally you would have to have prior to applying for the job. Okay. So it's not people leaving. It's just you're not getting enough applicants. Correct. All right. And I was thinking of the great resignation. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. But so tell me uh, the, you know, 
the skills you need to do this job, those things haven't changed over time, have they? I've gotten more, um, they have increased uh, on on every aspect of it, but it hasn't been overnight. It's been over over the last 15 years that we've been increasing standards. It's more of a profession now than, than a than a summer job, at least in, in Florida and South Florida, it is a year round job, it's a career. And the standards have been going up throughout the years, uh, pretty much just trying to catch up to California. California has been a, a trendsetter, if you were, or trailblazer, if you will, for the profession. What exactly is happening at the beaches? I mean, is it, are you basically telling people swim at your own risk or do you have to close beaches? No, we we no, we don't do that. I mean, we we do use um, overtime to fill in as needed. Uh, we do keep twenty towers open. And so far, we've been able to keep twenty towers open year round in the area about three miles long of public beach along the city of Fort Lauderdale. And what's happening with the lifeguards then? Are are they just well, having to? Everybody work? everybody works more now. Okay. Overtime overtime is a daily occurrence, and that is not just for us. That's pretty much for most departments. Um, but how do you protect against burnout? On the area. That is a very thin line and, you know, yeah, very uh, delicate balance. We offer the overtime. It's not mandatory overtime. So we offer the, the overtime, but we, we do understand when people turn it down because, well, they need a rest day. So Fort Lauderdale hosted an open call tryout this summer, the first one in a long time. What's, what's, yeah, we, what's significant about the event? Well, we, we normally uh, don't hire like that. That is a system that is mostly used in uh, seasonal agencies in order to get as many candidates as possible to then get them certified, everyone at once, as many as, as they can. Uh, us being a year-round agency, we've never really had a, a need to do such a event. Uh, we did one early in the summer in June, and we are actually having another one this Thursday, July 21st at 9 a.m. And we're using the same the same approach as uh, agencies that are either seasonal or agencies that beef up their staff over over the summer season. They they use a system, and it's it's a it's essentially it's a swim run race. You have a, a course, an open water course that you have to complete in certain amount of time and then you have a a run portion of it every agency does it differently as long as they meet the standards set forth by the united states life-saving association which is who um overseas certifies open water lifeguard agencies i see by the way do you do you compete in lifeguard competitions i personally don't anymore i, I did when i was younger and in my uh, first uh, first few years first five years out here we uh, i competed in both the regular lifeguard competitions and the ems competitions which later on i moved on to putting together and judging and coordinating throughout the region yeah, i mean i'm just wondering is that a way to also recruit or no uh for the most part lifeguard competitions are are, are for lifeguards that are already working you need to be affiliated with an agency in order to be able to compete gotcha by the way in these tryouts that you've had are you getting a lot of people trying out? Uh, the first one we had, we had just shy of uh, 20 people, which for the short notice, we had like a two-week 
uh, window that we advertised for, and I was happy with the turnout. Uh, for this coming one, I am hoping I have about the same, if not more. Okay. I mean, but you you know. You know what it takes to do this job. I mean, how many of these people you look at and you could tell that person might have a chance to do this, you know? Well, we, we don't necessarily, you know, judge them until we're done with the test. Uh, but for the most part, we do make it very clear. We, we explain what the test is like and what they're up against. And our, for example, the swim, the swim portion of our, of our test is a 500 meter swim under 10 minutes in open water. And that is regardless of what conditions are like. So if it's now, obviously, if it's a hurricane type swell, we're not having we're not holding a test like that. That's just asking for someone to get injured. But under most conditions, we hold the test and you still have the 10 minutes to do it under and competitively you want to go well below that. Yeah. Again, I'm talking with Gio Serrano. He's the acting Fort Lauderdale Ocean Rescue Chief. We're talking about the shortage of lifeguards and how that's impacting beaches. Find out more of this story, by the way, on our social media, WLRN Sundial. So, Gio, what I mean, what are you doing besides these open tryouts? How else are you trying to, you know, convince people to consider this? Because, as you said, it's a career. How, how are you combating the shortage? Well, anytime we, we use social media to advertise, as most everybody does these days. But every time we go to a to a community event, uh, whether it's teach hands only CPR, stub the bleed. Uh, we, we go to schools to, to talk on career days and or talk about beach and water safety. We, we always bring it up that there, if anyone's interested and as long as they can pass uh, the standards, the required standards and testing process, uh, we're, we're, we'll take anyone. Again, there is an aptitude that you have to have and requirements that need to be met, like emergency medical responder certification, as well as surf life saving certification. But those we're actually doing now in-house after the tryout. Yeah. So if you can actually pass the, the 500 swim and the tower to tower run and the time allotted, we'll put you, uh, we'll put you through the Academy through about 90 hours of training and then get you on the job. Gotcha. And by the way, uh, you know, like, you know, for the average shift, how, how many hours does a person spend out there? Uh, our lifeguards work 10 hour days. That does include um, lunch break and training time since the job is so physically and medically skill demanding. We do have to provide a certain amount of uh, training daily, conditioning, physical conditioning, just medical training to keep up skills, but also to recertify our EMT and paramedic certifications. Yeah. So they, out of the 10-hour day, they'll roughly be out on the beach about nine hours uh, or eight hours in something i see so uh you know we saw that uh jim mccrady he's hallandale beaches um hallandale's ocean rescue chief he told the sun sentinel uh he had said that the solution would be to raise pay and offer better benefits is it that simple is that do you think that'll solve the problem that would definitely help the problem yeah uh the, the few the few candidates we do lose we usually lose them to to other uh, other aspects of public safety, and usually the main reason we get is is that it's either uh, better pay or and or benefits. What I mean, what's the starting pay for people to know? Uh, starting pay right now here is uh, nineteen fifty an hour for part time. Okay, 
And but there are benefits. Uh, I mean, there's health and once you once you become full time, yeah, there are benefits. There are yearly pay raises, uh, not only cost of living, but then you have pay raises based on evaluation, uh, plus all the benefits you get and certification pay and things like that. Why did you want to be a lifeguard? Hey, I, I grew up on an island in the Caribbean, going to the beach and, and doing water sports. So when I moved here and I saw that I could get paid to to be on the beach every day, and frankly, all my life had, had I had a superhero complex. So when when I was given the choice to or presented with the opportunity to spend to do both the things that I enjoy the most, helping people and being on the beach, it was a no brainer. So what do you tell people who might be considering it? What do you say to them about what it takes to be one? It's to me, it's the best job on earth, but it's definitely not the easiest. You have to work hard to get in it. And after that, you have to, you have to pay your dues every day. You have to train daily. Uh, most lifeguards not only train on train on the job, but they also train on their days off. So a lot of them train even harder on their days off. Um, then the, comp- the competition aspect of it uh, helps motivate staff to attain a higher level of physical condition as well. So anything that we can do to make our lifeguards or to help our lifeguards perform better, do better, we absolutely should always do. Well, Gio, I appreciate you sh- uh, sh- spending the time with me and sharing the information, and, and hopefully maybe uh, – one or two or a few people heard that and said, maybe I could do this. You never know. Gio, I really thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Definitely. Gio Serrano, acting Fort Lauderdale Ocean Rescue Chief. And by the way, if you're a lifeguard, share your story with us on our social media. What's it like? What does it take to be a lifeguard? Find us at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, we're going to discuss our July Sundial Book Club pick and why some consider The River of Grass to be one of the most important books written in the last hundred years. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was a journalist before she became one of the greatest champions for protecting the Everglades. She supported the efforts to turn it into a national park and served on the park's founding committee. Her book, The Everglades River of Grass, came out in 1947, the year that the Everglades National Park was dedicated. Two decades later, she convinced President Richard Nixon to nix a project for a major airport in what is now the Big Cypress National Preserve. Today, we owe so much to her actions. We've been reading her book this month for the Sundial Book Club. Earlier today, we spoke with Eve Samples, Executive Director of Friends of the Everglades, about the role that Marjorie played in the region. And we started by asking Eve why she left her career as a journalist to become an environmentalist. That's right. I was a journalist for 20 years. And during the last decade or so, I wrote a lot about the environment, the Everglades, Lake Okeechobee, and the mismanaged water system that has afflicted Florida for decades. And writing about that in depth led me to want to be on the front lines of advocacy. And I found myself at Friends of the Everglades in 2020, early 2020, And I was absolutely motivated and inspired by the legacy of our founder, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who herself was a journalist at the Miami Herald for many years. Mm. What's your first memory of the Everglades? 
So I grew up in North Miami and North Miami felt like a world apart from the Everglades, but I was one of those lucky kids that got to go on field trips to the Everglades on occasion. And I recall taking that bus ride, hot unair conditioned bus ride down to the Everglades and witnessing an expanse of, of sawgrass and big sky and kind of insufferable heat that felt like another planet from North Miami where I grew up on a postage stamp sized lot. And um, it just made me realize that even though my neighborhood and the Everglades looked vastly different, we were not so far apart in terms of geographic proximity. And in fact, we were really connected as well. And, you know, Miami is built on the Everglades essentially. And once you get out there in the expanse of wilderness, whether you're a kid or you're older, you start to see signs of, of the Everglades, even in the urbanized area. In fact, I was driving on I-95 recently and I saw two roseate spoonbills fly over my head on I-95. So, you know, we, we are living together, the Everglades and the urbanized areas. So we're obviously, we're reading The Everglades River of Grass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas for our book club. And I wanted your thoughts. What what significance do you think that book has on conservation, but also just people's attitudes towards the Everglades? So it's an incredibly significant book in terms of the environmental movement, not just in Florida, but in the United States and really across the world. I mean, I think only Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, really rivals it in terms of how it shifted people's thinking in a dramatic way. And, you know, Marjorie was originally approached by her editor to write about the Miami River as part of this um, Rivers of America series. And, and she pointed out that the Miami River really wasn't that interesting, not interesting <laughs> enough to merit a whole entire book. And um, she talked to a water expert friend of hers, a scientist, and asked him if he could uh, agree with characterizing the Everglades as a river, a river of grass. And, and he thought about it and did a little homework and, and agreed that, yes, the Everglades could be a river of grass. And so just those three words, the Everglades River of Grass, it's so simple, it's so clear, and it really changed the way the world thinks about the Everglades. So we, you know, as you mentioned, Marjorie was a journalist uh, before she devoted her life to the Everglades. What do you think is one of her greatest strengths that you admire? Marjorie was very intellectually honest. She stayed open to the facts, and when the facts guided her in a, in a different direction than what she was previously thinking, she adjusted course. Um, you know, she was a, a champion early on of some things that ended up being bad for the Everglades. One of those things is uh, the construction of Tamiami Trail, which we actually have had to elevate in recent years to allow water to flow underneath it. So. I really admire that flexible thinking, and I think it's um, what made her such a wonderful advocate, because when, when you're in the realm of environmental advocacy, as, as we are at Friends of the Everglades, um, you really have to stay open to the facts as they come and not get entrenched in, in celebrating half measures or false victories. You know, the other thing, too, is in that position, you've got to be really good at dealing with politicians. And she she was what you know for you what do you think about most when when you you think about how she dealt with lawmakers whether it was state local or federal. 
Marjorie was a force, which is remarkable because she was barely five feet tall (laughs) and she had a manner of speaking that really just put people in positions of power in check. And she was armed with facts, always incredibly well-researched. She continued learning about the Everglades well after she published the Everglades River of Grass in 1947. So it it was really hard for, for even the most powerful leaders in Florida to counter her. (laughs) And of course, she was this great foil for them because she was so diminutive in stature. And I think that really helped her. And and beyond that, she was just unafraid. Um, She was not only unafraid to call out politicians, she was unafraid to call out some of the most politically powerful industries in Florida, whether it was the sugarcane industry or the development industry. When you took this position, um, it was just as the pandemic was coming. But there were two big issues in Florida that were worsening. The, the water pollution was helping ignite more red tides. Blue-green algae blooms were getting a lot more attention. What's the status of the efforts to address these problems? That's right. So in 2018 in Florida, we had a devastating toxic algae crisis, combination of blue-green algae and red tide in southwest Florida and Lake Okeechobee was was covered with this toxic brew, and it really galvanized the public to demand change. And that led to some elected leaders um, to react to that. So Governor DeSantis created a, a blue-green algae task force that put together a good series of recommendations on, on how to address these terrible water pollution issues in our state that are a real threat to public health. And those recommendations were published in 2019. And the problem is we have not embraced and enacted enough of those recommendations. Some of the low hanging fruit has been put into place, but really the the tough work that we need to do on reining in water pollution, phosphorus, nitrogen that triggers these algae blooms, and also the hard work on restoring the flow of clean water south from Lake Okeechobee to the Everglades in sufficient volumes, that river of grass that Marjorie wrote about. We haven't done enough in that regard. And, you know, 53 years after Marjorie founded Friends of the Everglades, that's what we continue to work on. And we've made some progress, but because the the forces of development and the sugarcane industry remains so powerful. Um, it's really a, a game of defense a lot of the time, and, and we do achieve some victories, but more are needed. We're talking with Eve Samples, Executive Director of Friends of the Everglades, and we're talking about the Everglades, River of Grass, the book written by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. It is the Sundial Book Club title for the month of July, and you can find out more on our Facebook page, Just look up Sundial Book Club. And if you're not a member, just ask to join. It's free. We'd love to have you. Plus, we'd also love to hear from you. Share your favorite story about the Everglades on the Facebook page. You know, interestingly, though, you said that people just, they'd had enough. And they were, and, and people on both sides were calling for change, something to be done. But how, how would you rate the way lawmakers, and not just, you know, state, but federal lawmakers also, uh, you know, the the work and efforts they made towards fixing these problems, not just the, the issues with the algae blooms, but also, again, trying to restore the Everglades. Do you think they've done in, enough? Is this or more or more money? What is it? So I would give the state and federal leaders a pretty mediocre grade at this point, um, maybe a, a C minus. Um, you know, the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan 
was signed off on in 2000. So we're, we're 22 years out from that. And, and while we are seeing significant funding come in for construction of those 68 projects, this is the biggest uh, environmental restoration project in the world. Um, the problem is, is that those earth moving projects alone won't be enough if we're not also reining in water pollution at its source in Florida. So those two things have to work in tandem. And, and I'll say too that at Friends of the Everglades, we're strong advocates of solutions that mimic mother nature, nature-based solutions, not over-engineered systems that can create more problems down the road. Um, that's what got Florida into trouble to begin with when we drained uh, the historic Everglades and tried to manipulate them into something that looked nothing like nature. So the more we can restore land and have significant um, uh, land to to build nature-based solutions on, the better off we'll be in Florida. I, I know you're an optimistic person, but I, I <laughs> Eve, I wanted to push you a little bit here on this. It's not only, you mentioned it, it's not only development. Florida's growing really fast. People just want to come here and live here, and that's putting a lot of pressure on those natural systems. And now we've got rising temperatures and rising seas. That's another challenge. How do you tackle both? Absolutely. So Everglades Protection and Restoration is a tool in the battle against climate change and, and sea level rise. Um, restoring the flow of clean water south to the Everglades helps hold back saltwater intrusion. The harmful algal blooms that you mentioned, toxic algae, they are more frequent when we have higher, hotter temperatures for more parts of the year. So that's evidence that we need to, to rein in these sources of uh, carbon um, disposition into the atmosphere. So, you know, these things are not separate. And one of my favorite quotes that's often misattributed to Marjorie, but was actually um, said by one of her confidants, is that saving the Everglades is a test. If we pass, we may get to keep the planet. And that certainly feels relevant in this era of accelerating climate change. So Marjorie Stoneman Douglas passed away in 1998. Um, the state was growing. Uh, climate change was being discussed, but not at the level it is now. And we, we're, we weren't experiencing the sort of things we are now. If she were alive today, what do you think she'd say about this current state of things here in Florida? I think Marjorie would have some harsh words for the manner in which we've eroded our growth management protections in Florida. We used to be a leader in the country in terms of smart growth in Florida, urban development boundaries that were adhered to. Um, and really that's been eroded over the last decade or so. So I think she'd be quite upset about that. Um, but I also think, you know, Marjorie herself was an optimist too, and she never shied away from pointing out the beauty that remained and, and the beauty that was still worth protecting. So if you head out to the Everglades this weekend, or if you're on Biscayne Bay, you'll still see remnants of that system um, that she wrote about so eloquently in the River of Grass. And I think she'd remind us that there's still a lot worth fighting for. Yeah, and, and I want to finish with this. For people who are reading or haven't yet read River of Grass, what do you want to tell them about how important Marjorie was to protecting this resource and what you hope they get from the book? Well, first of all, enjoy the book. It's incredible that, that Marjorie synthesized really 
millennia of history and, and wrote about it in a manner that is almost lyrical. So if, if you haven't read The Everglades River of Grass, it's one of those books that you really need to read if you live in Florida and care about the land and beautiful water that surrounds us. Um, so I think it's it's one of the great treasures that um, we have in terms of Florida's literary canon. And I'm so glad that WLRN is, is reading it this year. It's a great book. Again, that was Eve Samples, Executive Director of Friends of the Everglades. And yes, we were chatting about this month's Sundial Book Club. We are reading for the month of July, The Everglades, River of, Gla- of Grass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And look, you can find out more about it and any anything else that we've been reading. Just go to Facebook and look up Sundial Book Club. And if you're not a member, it's free. We'd love to have you. Uh, when you jump in, by the way, let us know what you're reading this summer. We'd love to hear from you. But also we're collecting stories. Uh, about uh, the Everglades, and we'd love to hear your story. Maybe, you know, it was a field trip you took as a child, or you went camping in the Everglades, something you saw out there. We'd love to, we're collecting some of those stories now, so just find us on the Facebook page and post there what your story is. We'd love to talk to you. And let us know what you think of the book. It is really a magnificent read, without a doubt. Well, that's our program for this Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. There is no show tomorrow. It's a school board day. But for Thursday, we're going to be talking about homeowner's insurance. I know, just swallow that down for a second. Home insurance is up 12% on average. That's according to Consumer Affairs. And in many states, premiums are surpassing inflation. And forget it, in Florida, it's a whole other story. What has your experience been with your home insurance policy? How has it changed your life? How much has it gone up? We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, your questions, your stories. Text us now, 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Or find us on Twitter or Facebook at WLRN Sundial. We're going to get some answers for you on Thursday as to why this is happening right now. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.